This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Well we are this morning continuing in our series called, what is it called? The Manifesto. Um, the Manifesto, Sermon on the Mount, and um, to be honest, um, look, if you want to get yourself into trouble these days, just talk about the Christian worldview of sex, marriage, and divorce. Um, and that's what we're doing today. We're going to be looking at the, those exact three issues, sex, marriage, divorce, a bit of pornography thrown in there for good measure. Um, so, so here goes. If, and if you're a, uh, this is your first time here at Anchor, maybe you're not a believer, welcome. This is a great Sunday to turn up to be at church. But can we just say, this is not the normal place we want to start a conversation with someone who's seeking to know more about the Christian faith. We would much prefer to start the conversation at Does God Exist at the ABCs. This is really the XYZs of the Christian faith. And so you've come at the end of the conversation. So we would love to continue that conversation with you by going back to the start, if that is you. But I also want to acknowledge that for many of us, this is... A really difficult issue. This isn't in the realm of theory. This has been our experience. And there is much brokenness that exists in our world. Um, and so the temptation for us is to let our prejudice or, or even to let our pain of our past experience shape what we think about these issues. And the challenge that we face as God's people is to not let our prejudice and our pain shape us, but to let God speak for himself and to sit humbly under the authority of his word. And so that's our task this morning. But um, before, before we get to praying and reading, some good news. And that is that um, Joel and Nicole are engaged. So congratulations to Joel and Nicole. So a great Sunday for you guys to turn up on a sermon on marriage. Um, so let me pray. We're going we're gonna to read the, the scriptures together. This is God's word. This is how he speaks to us and reveals his will to us. So we're going to Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. If you've got a Bible, you can go there now. Uh, otherwise, you can follow along on the screens behind me. Matthew 5, 27. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Father God, we pray for soft hearts this morning. 
as we come to a clear passage that has very difficult implications. God, we confess that our temptation is to let our prejudice and our pain shape our views on these issues. And so we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would help us to sit humbly under the authority of your word and let you speak. Father God, we pray that where there is brokenness, that this morning you would remind us of your healing grace and your mercy and your goodness and your love that is unconditional and faithful and endures forever. Pray that you would speak now. We ask it in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen. Well, the most recent uh, public relationship that has been under the media spotlight is that of none other than the politician known by one name, Barnaby, Barnaby Joyce. His unfolding breakdown to his wife of 24 years and then his adultery and affair with his staff worker and then her pregnancy and now the scandal of whether or not it's actually his child has all been sprawled across the newspapers and news outlets for the best part of the last three months. He has, as a result of this, lost his job and perhaps worse than that, lost his integrity. As his political party has sidelined him and asked him to step down and resign, we have seen in a very public way the breakdown of a marriage, an affair, and the consequences that come from that. And it's been interesting to see how our world has responded to this. Remember, this is a world that lives by the slogan, love is love, and everyone is free, and yet then still wants to hold our leaders accountable. And there's something good and appropriate about that. Our leaders ought to be accountable. Integrity is important. Does God have anything to say about these matters? Is God's message on marriage and divorce and adultery entirely irrelevant today? Or is it entirely profound and relevant to our lives? And I want to suggest it is. But to be honest with you, it cuts against the grain of the message that our culture spins, of the message that our world offers us. And so just to give you some context of this, in Matthew 5, 13 and 14, Jesus calls his church to be exactly what Rowan is trying to live out in his everyday context of comedy, to be what? Salt and light. And then he goes on to give six examples of what it looks like to do that, to live this entirely countercultural, distinct and different life. Last week, Brad helped us look through the issue of anger and murder. This week, we will look at three other examples, perhaps two, because I'm not sure we'll get to the third one. And then the next week, we'll look at the final two examples. But what, where we're at over these next three weeks are the six examples of what it looks like for God's people to live distinct, different, holy, set-apart, salty, light-filled lives. And I'm going to clump these three together under the banner of integrity. Integrity of our words, integrity of our vows and our promises, our, our marriage vows, but also, at the end of this chapter, the very everyday promises that we make. 
Integrity. I would suggest there's probably not much more of a pertinent area than this. And so as our habit at Anchor is to walk through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, when we come to the hard bits, we don't just skip them because it's not PC or because it's difficult or because the pastoral implications are painful. We refuse to believe the lie that we're wiser than God and we let him speak. And so the first area that Christ calls his church to live distinctly is in the area of marital faithfulness. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus here is quoting the seventh commandment, prohibition against adultery. Adultery is, uh, at least in the Bible, a specific sin that a married person commits. It's a sexual relationship outside of your primary covenant relationship with your husband and wife. Today, we might call that uh, infidelity or an affair. That's maybe a softened down term for what the scriptures call adultery. And I think irrespective of your worldview, whether you're a Christian or not here this morning, most of us, most of us would say that adultery is wrong. It's destructive. It's betrayal of the most important relationship that you have. It's cheating. It's wrong. It's harmful. But perhaps the reasons for why, our foundational reasons for why that wrong may be slightly different. I think our culture would say the reason that's wrong is because it's harmful. It hurts someone. And we would agree with that. It is harmful. It is destructive. It hurts lots of people. But it's important for us to understand the Bible's understanding, the Bible's message, the Bible's ethic on marriage and sex, and why God says what he says about this. So I'm going to backtrack to the very beginning, to Genesis chapter 2, because there the Bible says in the very first marriage that two people will leave their families, will be joined together as one flesh. And that word there, the Hebrew word there, is the word echad. And it means to be fused together as one. And sex inside of that relationship, inside of a marriage, makes people one. Not exclusively sex. It's an emotional and spiritual fusing together as well. But, but God says what marriage does and what sex inside marriage does is it creates one personal entity. We are, we are one in marriage. The Bible has a very high view of sex. It's never dirty or inappropriate. In fact, it is celebrated in the whole book of Song of Songs. And Joel and Nicole, you can now read that book. As the writer rejoices over his lover and sexual expression in it, sexual intimacy is powerful. It creates oneness in a relationship that deeply bonds people together. Psychologically, and I mean physiologically, sorry, we know that to be true. Science has shown us that um, after the act of sex, your body releases all of these hormones to heighten emotional intimacy. It fuses people together. Tim Keller says this about sex. Sex is a covenant renewal ceremony for marriage. It is the physical enactment of the inseparable oneness 
in all the other areas of a marriage. A physical enactment of the inseparable oneness that's the same reality of all of the other areas in our marriages, if you're married. And so when God says that sex is to be enjoyed in the confines, the safety of a covenant marriage relationship, of those promises as a safe boundary, he's saying that because he knows the power, the bonding power that sex has in a relationship. And he knows the destructive nature when you pull that one fleshness apart. So the Bible's understanding of marriage and sex is not there as a rule to curb fun. God is not a cosmic killjoy. This is a safeguard. This is a protection that God has. Now recognize that that is vastly different from our culture, our individualistic culture that, sex, that says sex isn't just, or rather isn't an act of service towards another. It's about personal self-fulfillment. Not everyone agrees with the Bible's view of sex and marriage. And I realize this is an extreme example. I'm not attempting to straw man here, but one million Australians in 2014 had an account with the website Ashley Madison. Ashley Madison is a website that provides a service that seeks to facilitate marital affairs. Their tagline is, life is short, have an affair. Founder and CEO of Ashley Madison says this, Monogamy is not in our DNA. Monogamy is a man-made construct which came about because we needed a way to assign heredity in order to legally transfer property rights. Love, affection, and all things like and all man- things of this manner had nothing to do with marriage, well, at least not originally. Effectively, he's saying marriage is really about a contractual agreement of passing on property. We've been led to believe this notion of monogamy is natural and to step outside of your marriage is a sin. If this was true, if we were truly only meant to be with one person evermore, then why do people still cheat? The answer is, it's in our nature. How different God's view of marriage and adultery is to that. We might agree on one point. That there is something in human nature that destroys relationships. But that something is not a good thing. That something is sin. It's our, it's our propensity to act selfishly. It's our propensity to do things that would damage others. And the solution, the answer to that is not to give in to those desires. Since we think about our secular worldviews answer about sex about marriage all it offers us is you have a desire since desires are natural and we have no way of gauging a moral right or wrong about those desires the only solution you have is to embrace it because that's what will make you happy our christian worldview has a very different message it says you have been created with good desires But those good desires have been frustrated and distorted by the presence of sin in our lives and our world. And the solution to that is that Jesus comes to pay the penalty for those distorted desires, to cleanse us from them, to give us his Holy Spirit, to help us walk in holiness, to say no to those desires with the promise of a future that he will set that straight and right. Isn't that a better option? Like, even if you're not a Christian, doesn't that sound more appealing? 
then you are simply a random, natural bunch of chemicals. And as you have natural desires, your only choice, if you want to be happy, is to give in to them. Adultery is not natural. It's destructive. It destroys families. It destroys children. It destroys communities. And if we're honest, adultery has destroyed countless churches. Losing count of the amount of marriages in ministry that I've heard of, of pastors who have slept with their secretary or slept with a member of their church who they've been counseling. Adultery is destructive. And God's intended purpose in Genesis 2 is that a man and woman would leave and cleave. That they would leave their family, that they would cleave together, that they would be joined as one. And Jesus says what God has joined together, let no person separate and pull apart. The Bible wants to protect marriage, to preserve it for our good, as a symbol of God's relationship with his church, ultimately for God's glory. God wants us to be a faithful people because he is a faithful God. We're to be like him. And so if you're married, then I just want to remind you of the promise that you made on your wedding day. The promise that you made to your spouse was that forsaking all others, you will love, cherish, and be faithful to them for how long? As long as you both shall live. That's your vow. That's your promise. And it really doesn't matter how you start your wedding day, your, your marriage. What matters is how you finish. That you remain faithful to those vows till the day you die. That's God's picture for what marriage is intended to be like. And so he says, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But as we've seen this technique that Jesus offers, he wants to take the law to this exceeding level of righteousness. He wants to drive deep into the heart. And so we see this pattern here of what Jesus says next. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. You've heard that it was said in verse 28, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Last week, Brad reminded us that murder can be committed with your words. And it's just as true that adultery can be committed with your imagination. Lustful intent. That word there, lustful intent, is not a noticing glance. That as you notice what is culturally defined as a particularly attractive male or female, you notice their beauty. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about a lingering fantasy. He's talking about imaginary sex with another person. There's a huge difference between looking, noticing, and lusting and fantasizing. And I think Jesus' words have profound relevance to a world that is steeped in pornography. In the Sex in Australia report that was released in 2014, it found that 63% of men and 20% of women had looked at porn in the last 12 months. 
The stats are showing that increasingly, particularly young boys, as young as 11, are engaging with hardcore pornography on a regular basis. Porn is everywhere. And research has shown that porn actually changes our attitudes and our behaviors. It changes them. That we begin to think that sex doesn't require a relationship. And as someone engages in porn, that that process of intimacy that happens begins to occur with an image. You begin to form intimate connections to a screen. It's a false version of intimacy. The uh, world of psychology has spent some time researching how our brains respond to pornography. And one of the things that they've noticed is that there is a part of your brain, and in this part of your brain there are neurons there called mirror neurons. And what your mirror neurons do is that they mirror a behavior that you are watching. And so that's why you cry when you watch a sad scene in a movie, when you see someone crying. When you see someone on the the stage here sharing their interview and there is emotion, your mirror neurons are imitating what is the experience that that person is is, is happening for them. Science tells us that neurons mirror the behavior as if the observer were acting. How profound is that for the issue of pornography? That what psychology has discovered is what Jesus has been saying for millennia. You can commit adultery in your heart. There is no such thing as innocent or safe porn. For a start, it objectifies women, degrading them, their value, their dignity, their worth. It fuels an industry that is culpable of sex slavery and sexual immorality. Porn is damaging. It's also damaging to yourself and to the relationships that you are in. And Jesus says it needs to be dealt with. And he has some very extreme measures to deal with it. Have a look at what he says in verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin... Tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Now there has been debate raging over the centuries of how to interpret these verses. Do we interpret them as Jesus speaking Um, using the technique of hyperbole. This is uh, intentionally extreme language that doesn't need to be taken literally. Or perhaps we should interpret this as uh, hypothetical. Jesus says, if your hand, if your eye, or perhaps it's both. One such person who uh, chose the Literal version was Oregon of Alexander, a third century scholar who decided to interpret these verses literally in an attempt to curb his sexual desires. His first um, solution was to roll on sharp briars. And when that didn't work, he went the whole way and he castrated himself and became a eunuch, quoting Matthew 5 as his justification for his actions. Now he later came to regret his actions and renounce the, the behavior of 
self-mutilation. And that's not what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus is not after mutilation of the body. What he's after is mortification of sin, of putting sin to death. Now, we know that to be true because Jesus identifies the problem of sin not as an external problem, but an internal one. And he identifies the solution to the problem of sin not as an outward-in problem, but an inward-out. Sorry, not as an outward-in solution, but an inward-out solution. Jesus is relentlessly pursuing inner heart transformation. We know that. When that happens, the outward behavior changes. But his point is that we are to be ruthless with sin, as if our lives depended on it. Kind of reminds me of that story of um, an American climber called Aaron Ralston, who was climbing and was involved in an accident uh, in a remote part of the wilderness where his arm was trapped And he couldn't free himself. And so he actually, with his own pocket knife, amputated his arm so that he would survive for the sake of his life. Or it reminds me even more graphically, um, a number of years ago, I went to see the movie Saw 4 by myself. I I was supposed to go with a friend and he couldn't make it. And so I just decided to go by myself. Bad move. The opening scene of Saw 4 is this. A person awakes in a dental chair and in front of them they see an x-ray image of their own head with a key stuck behind it. And then a mirror that shows that their head is in a bear trap with a timer and a padlock to get out. But the key is behind their eye and on the steel tray next to them is a scalpel. And it's it's, such a bad scene. I've kind of been scarred, but that is the image that Jesus is trying to get to us. This is how we deal with sin in our lives. We are ruthless with it. We do not cozy up next to sin. We do not flirt with it. We do not see how close we can get to the line before we're over the line. We make war against it by the power of the Spirit. We put our sin to death. We take off the old self. We put on the new. We walk in the holiness and freedom and light of the Spirit-empowered life that Jesus calls us to. Throwing off the sin that entangles. We make war against our flesh. And so I want to say to those of you, guys and girls, because Porn is not just a guy's issue. For those of you who have made war, for those of you who have installed apps on your phone, for those of you who have made costly sacrifices to live without things, for those of you who have walked in repentance and prayerfulness, I want to say well done. Thank you. That's what Jesus calls us to. A life of continual repentance, a life of laying down our life, a life of dying to ourself and our selfish desires, a life of walking like Christ did. Well done. Don't give up the fight. You know, guilt and shame and what psychologists call cognitive dissonance are three things that are associated with addictions. 
And so when we walk in guilt and shame, what psychology tells us is that you are virtually guaranteeing that you will repeat the behavior that you don't want to do. Christ's solution to lasting change is to bring your sin into the light, into the healing grace that he has to offer us, to confess it. That age-old Christian discipline of confessing sin to one another and then having people speak into your reality, speak into your brokenness with the good news that you are set free, with the good news that God has given you his spirit to allow you to walk in freedom. And so if you're struggling, bring it to the light. Confess to your triplet. Ask for prayer. That's Jesus' promise that as we begin to lay our lives down, he will empower us by his spirit to do that. Do not commit adultery. Well, the second area of Life, we're called to be salt and light and distinct, is in the area of divorce and marriage, the area of integrity with our words. And um, I don't think we're going to have time to get into that last paragraph there on oaths, but effectively what Jesus is saying is, if you just were a person of your word, you wouldn't need to say, but I promise you, I promise you I'll do it. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. But when it comes to our marriage vows, this is what Christ says, verse 31, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus here is loosely quoting Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. Uh, And these verses, the interpretation of these verses in the first century was hotly debated and all sorts of teachers of the law and scribes had very different opinions on how to interpret these verses. Effectively, the law in Deuteronomy 24 was a safeguard against flippant divorce and a safeguard against men casting women out because divorce in the first century and in Israel's history has always disadvantaged women, and that's probably as true today as it was then. So this law in Deuteronomy is there as a protection for women and to curb flippant divorce, just divorce for whatever reason there was. The Pharisees had taken those laws in Deuteronomy 24 and twisted them to the nth degree. The Mishnah, the law of the Pharisees, lists a ludicrous bunch of reasons why you could divorce your wife. The law didn't permit a woman to divorce her husband, but a husband could divorce his wife for these reasons. She burnt the dinner. She got a monobrow. She got wrinkles. The in-laws moved into their city without the wife informing the husband. I mean, you name it. The list just goes on. They're pathetic. They're pathetic reasons. And so Jesus speaks into a culture that has a low view of marriage and a flippant view of divorce. It's not all that different from ours, actually. You see, I think we assume that when Jesus speaks these words, the culture automatically accepts them. This, what Jesus says here, was as countercultural in the first century as it is in 2018. And Jesus drives the 
external observance of the law to the heart. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you, you cannot say with good conscience that you have observed the law and been obedient to the seventh commandment because you've given your wife a divorce certificate to say she's free to remarry. The piece of paper doesn't magically dissolve the vows that you made. That's Jesus' point. You, you don't have a clear conscience when you've done that. His point is that we're called to be faithful. That what God has joined together, no person should separate. But the question arises for us then, are there any exceptions to Jesus' rule? And yes, there are. Here in Matthew chapter 5, he lists the exception of sexual immorality. The word there is the Greek word porneia. And it's a bit of a junk drawer term for all sorts of sexual perversion, sin, and brokenness. He says when someone, a married, a married couple, when one person in that married couple has committed a sexual sin, the one flesh bond has been torn apart. And in that instance... The person is free to leave. Paul will go on to add two further exceptions to that. In 1 Corinthians 7, he will talk about uh, death freeing someone from the covenant of marriage. Paul will say the same thing in Romans 7 verse 2. That if a husband or wife is widowed, they are free from the covenant of divorce that they made. And then finally, the final exception that Paul lists in 1 Corinthians seven fifteen is abandonment of an unbelieving spouse. In the first century, many people were becoming Christians as adults, and one person became a Christian and the other person didn't in a marriage. And often, the person who was no longer a believer because of the shame that becoming a Christian brought would divorce and leave. And Paul says that person is freed from their marriage vows and free to remarry. Now, in Australian law, we passed no-fault divorce in 1975, and we require a 12-month period of separation before you can be divorced. And it's very easy, in that sense, to get divorced in Australia for all sorts of reasons. I woke up, and I realized I didn't love them anymore. I found someone else. I found someone that makes me happy. They got wrinkles. She burnt the dinner. At whatever reason you want, we have no-fault divorce in Australia. And it means that you're actually more locked in to whoever you've got a phone contract with than you are your husband or wife. Isn't that crazy? I find that crazy in Australian culture, that you have a 24-month minimum locking contract with Telstra and a 12-month minimum locking contract with your spouse. That seems crazy to me. The statistics are that in Australia, one in every three marriages will end in divorce. And what research has been showing recently is that those statistics are actually getting better. The divorce rate is dropping. The length of marriages that end in divorce is increasing. The marriage rate is increasing. So our statistics on divorce are actually getting better. And so don't be the Christian that says the world is imploding on us and it's just getting increasingly worse and worse and worse and worse. It's not true when it comes to marriage and divorce. But it is true that every one in every three will end in divorce. And so what Jesus says, his intent for marriage is that it will be two people joined together for life. 
a man and a woman joined together for life, to be more specific. But that raises a whole bunch of pastoral questions, does it not? What do we do with that? And I can just sense the tone of this room right now is heavy and weighty because this is not in the realm of theory. This is our experience. Maybe your parents have been divorced. Maybe your parents have been divorced multiple times. Maybe you're divorced yourself. Maybe you're considering a divorce. Maybe you're having an affair right now. And so what do we do? What if you are divorced? What does God say about you? Are you damaged goods? Well, sadly, the church often treats you like that. But the answer is no, you're not. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Divorce is not a perpetual sin. You are not a perpetual sinner for the rest of your life if you've been divorced. And most importantly, divorce is not your identity. Remember what Paul says? He lists a whole bunch of sins and he says, and that is what you were. But you've been washed. You've been sanctified. So if you're divorced this morning, that's not who you are. Sure, it's a mistake you made. It's a sin you committed. And what do we do with sin in our lives? We repent. We confess. We appropriate the truth of the gospel to our lives and we walk in the freedom and wholeness that Christ offers us by his spirit. Think of the encounter that Jesus has in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. She's had five marriages that have all ended in divorce. She's in a sixth relationship that's a de facto. How does Jesus treat that woman? Condemnation, judgment, perpetual sin... Damaged goods? No way. He loves her. He steps towards her with grace. And he offers her the one thing that she's been longing for her whole life. Living water that would satisfy. Relationship with the one man that can truly make her happy. What about those who are in a difficult marriage? Maybe you're contemplating divorce. Maybe it's really hard. And you're asking yourself the question, does this mean that God wants me to be unhappy for the rest of my life? Well, I want to say a couple of things. The first is, know that you're vulnerable. If you find yourself in a difficult marriage, you are vulnerable You are vulnerable to the person who gives you the needs that your spouse isn't giving you at the moment. Secondly, know that God's purpose for you, as it is for every single person, married or single, is that we would pursue repentance, forgiveness and reconciliation. Repentance, forgiveness and reconciliation over and over and over. And that's the Christian life. That's God's purpose for you. It's God's purpose for your marriage. And thirdly, know that Hope is not lost for a happy marriage. Hope is not lost for a happy marriage. We have to believe, do we not, that God is the God who took down a giant with the stone of a shepherd boy. That God is the God who fulfilled his promises to bring a whole nation 
from an old barren couple called Abraham and Sarah. That God is the God who brought hope to the hopeless grief of Mary and Martha at the death of their brother Lazarus and raised him to life. He did all of those things with a word. God is the God who can bring a word of hope to a difficult, broken marriage and make that marriage beautiful, make that marriage healthy, make that marriage strong. And so if you're struggling, please reach out for help. Marriage is a community project. We need each other. We don't want you to suffer in silence and alone. Speak to your GC leader. Speak to one of the staff. I'm available this week. Do not suffer in silence. I remember many years ago talking to my old pastor, Ray, who spent all of his life ministering in the western suburbs of Sydney. And he said to me, he has a very different experience from his peers and colleagues who minister in uh, more uh, upper socioeconomic areas of Sydney. He says he often finds out about marriage difficulties and a divorce that's going to happen 12 months before the divorce. He said his peers and colleagues find out after the divorce papers have been filed. The reason is that Westie culture is real. It's raw. There's something about Westie culture that just says, this is who I am. Take it or leave it. The rest of us, which is most of the people in this room, we live by the facade that our lives are perfect and we have no problems. We try and hide our problems and they only surface when it's all too late. Let's be a real church that preserves marriages by dealing with problems when they arise, not by burying them and pushing them down and hoping that they will go away. There are no perfect marriages. Just so you know that. If you're struggling in a difficult marriage and you think, oh, it would be so much better if I was married to that person. The reality is, the grass isn't always greener on the other side. There are no perfect marriages. There are broken marriages that require repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation over and over and over again. Well, what about uh, someone who finds himself in a marriage where there is domestic violence? And this one's real and pertinent. And I want to say as a church, we will pack the bags of any person who is stuck in a violent marriage. We will be the first to pack the bags and take a woman out of an abusive situation. But there's a big difference between separation and divorce. They're not the same thing. And in an ideal world, separation would result in reconciliation on the terms where violence and abuse is dealt with properly and decisively. But I think where a partner is persistent in violence and abuse, and I think that that forms the grounds of someone who has broken their vows to love and to cherish their spouse, and divorce is appropriate in that context. Now, I actually say that with much trepidation because of Jesus' very blunt commands here. 
And I've actually spent a lot of time reading this week and I'm still not convinced that I've got this all figured out. But that's where I sit at the moment. The next question on remarriage, I really don't have time to go into and I'm not sure I'm settled myself on that answer. Let me say, there's a, I feel like this sermon has the potential of hidden partial landmines everywhere I walk. And I don't have time to address every single partial issue here. But let me say this. The Christian view of marriage is that it's not a contract. It's a covenant. And a covenant is not a promise of present love. A covenant is a promise of future commitment that I promise to be committed to you and to love you no matter what. There's a vast difference between a contract and a covenant. In sickness and in health, riches, poverty, for better, for worse, as long as we both shall live. What God has joined together let no person separate. Now, to be honest with you, what better way to be salt and light in a culture that has a divorce rate of one in three than to pursue and to nurture healthy marriages? Every marriage requires work. Marriage is like a truck parked halfway up a steep hill. You put the truck in neutral and what's going to happen? It will roll down the hill. Marriage requires work. Relationships require work. Repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation on repeat till the day you die. And I acknowledge that this is a hard word that grates against our experiences and our culture. But we have to, we have to refuse to believe the lie that we're wiser than God on this issue. If God is there, if he created us, if he designed marriage, then surely he knows best. The story of the Bible is a beautiful story of a God who has pursued unfaithful people. Think of the book of Hosea, the prophet Hosea. God says, I want you to go and marry Gomer, a prostitute who will be unfaithful to you. I want you to marry her and commit yourself to her and love her as a picture of what I'm doing for my people. God is the God who loves spiritual whores. And that's what we are. Every single one of us has run after the idols of our heart and bowed down and worshipped at the things that we thought would make us happy Every single one of us. And God has wooed us and loved us and pursued us by his grace in Jesus. And God says, I'm committing myself to you, to love you, no matter what. No matter how broken you are, no matter how ugly your sin is, no matter how far you walk away, my promise is to be faithful to you. And God's faithful promise is that every single person who comes to him in repentance finds a God with open arms, finds the healing mercy of his grace and his love. His love is unconditional. It's the best relationship you could ever have. He will love you no matter what.
God loves the porn addict. He loves the adulterer. He loves the divorcee. He loves those living in secret hidden sin. And he promises to be faithful to you. That's the good news. Today, I don't want us to leave here under condemnation and guilt. I want us to leave here knowing that Christ has set you free. And he set you free for a purpose, to walk in faithfulness. To be a people who are distinct, a people of light, a people like God. We're going to respond this morning in a number of ways. We're going to respond by taking the Lord's Supper this morning. This meal is a meal for those of you who love Jesus, who worship him. It's a tangible reminder of what Jesus has done. Christ's blood was shed for your sin. And his sin wipes you clean, as white as snow, says David. Christ's body was broken for you, for the brokenness that exists in your relationships. And so I want to invite you to come this morning and participate in this meal as a reminder of God's unconditional, unfailing love for you this morning. But perhaps you feel burdened by the weight of your sin this morning. And our prayer team is going to be up the back. They would love to pray for you. You can identify them with the orange lanyard that will be around their neck. They will also be available after the service for five to ten minutes down the front here. Come for prayer. Confess your sin. Bring it into the light and experience the freedom and grace that God offers us. And we're going to respond by singing, worshipping our good God. So I'm going to pray for us. I realize I've gone over time again. I'm sorry, but this was just too important an issue to, to not address properly. So I'm going to, I'm going to pray. Um, if there are issues that, for you that are real, then please come and talk to me afterwards. Come and talk to one of our staff. Head to our prayer team. But let me, let me pray for us this morning. Father God, oh, this is a, a word that stands so countercultural to our our lives and there is so much pain and brokenness that exists in the realm of relationships god we thank you that you are the specialist when it comes to reconciliation that you are the god who stepped into the mess that you took the initiative to forgive by sending your son jesus and so i pray this morning for any person that is feeling condemned and ashamed and I want to lift that shame off and replace it with the grace and mercy of Jesus I want to pray for those who are fighting their sin and I pray this morning for an extra measure of Holy Spirit empowered grace to say no I want to pray for our marriages in this room that by the power of your spirit you would help every single person who is married to pursue repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation every single day. God, make us a people that are so different in this area that people would look at the marriages in this church and say, of course, this is what it's meant to be like. We need you, Father. Empower us by your spirit, we pray. 
We ask it in the strong name of Jesus. And God's people said, Amen.